And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this week we're um, taking a little bit of a bit of a different sort of pace, uh, reading a bit of a shorter piece than we've been reading recently. Um, we're reading The Necessity of Extended Autopoiesis by Nathaniel Virgo, um, which I believe was published pretty recently. Um, looking at the Very text. recently uh, published this year. Yep. Um, I think it might have even been within the last couple of weeks. Um, the article is published in, a, I think, a journal called Adaptive Behaviour. Um, and... I found this to be pretty pretty damn interesting. Um, it's I think it is a interesting and kind of provocative follow on from our viable system model um, conversation that we had pretty recently too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Kyle, what's your what's your take on this? Uh, yeah, so um, this paper is essentially trying to grapple with the way in which both the internal processes of our body and the way they relate to the external world can be thought of as networks. And then thinking about what bodies mean in the context of that sort of network point of view. So, you know, last uh, episode, we talked about the VSM. We talked about how in the VSM, you have those sort of connections to the external environment. Um, You can kind of think about that cross uh, membrane internal external network as sort of being the main problem that this paper is trying to conceptualize um, using these theories of autopoiesis and uh, extended autopoiesis which certainly can be uh, mapped onto the ideas of viability we've been talking about Mm -hmm. uh, in previous episodes yeah I mean like autopoiesis is um is central to to a lot of Stafford Beer's work, and it's it's a pretty common notion in cybernetics. Um, should we start with the definition of what autopoiesis is? Mm-hmm. So, essentially, um, autopoiesis means uh, self generation, right? Um, so uh, it's it's uh, the capacity. It, it, like it, it really does mean more or less the same thing as what is meant by viability in the VSM. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's that self creation, self sustenance and self action. You can maybe say, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, as you said, yeah, it's, it's crucial to, I mean, it's, yeah, it's crucial to the notions of viability. Um, for us as organic beings, it's kind of crucial to our, um, our ability, like I mean, the the fact that your body can rebuild itself continuously and and continue on to exist is 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 autopoiesis. The fact that a say political party or a group of any kind is able to continue to exist even when its members come and go is there's an element of autopoiesis there. Um, it yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a property of complex systems, um, not just of organic bodies but i mean the, the the examples here as as are so often the case are going to be drawn from from biology um so like just getting into the i mean this is a pretty short paper um so we're just gonna we're gonna read out uh, chunks of it um the author starts off with um there are at least two ways to think about what a living organism is. The first and perhaps most immediately intuitive is to think of the organism as being identified with its physical body. On this view, the organism is a physical object with a physical boundary, 
and is ultimately composed of atoms and molecules. However, in defining autopoiesis, uh, Mataruna and Varela in 1980 took a different approach. They hypothesized that living organisms are the same thing as autopoietic systems, or autopoietic machines, and they defined an autopoietic system not as a set of physical objects, but as a network of processes with certain properties. On this view, a living organism is composed not of molecules, but of processes, which I take to mean patterns of dynamical change over time. In the language of autopoiesis, the organism does not merely have a network of processes that sustains it. The organism is the network. Pretty good, right? Um, so drawing a hard distinction here between the evident material object mm -hmm. that seems to be the organism, like the, the, the dog or whatever you're looking at, putting that aside and instead looking at the network of processes that makes up the dog. Pretty, um, and like, it's, it initially sounds kind of nuts, right? Because like, you're, you're saying that the organism isn't its body, that it's instead a network of, of, of interlocking processes. But this makes, this makes total sense because, I mean, the, the organism is a collection of molecules that are constantly being replaced, right? That like, um, your the, the, the molecules that make up your body are constantly being filtered in and out, um. And yet the organism persists, right? Um, so it, it has to be this case that it's actually the, the network of processes that is the organism and the, 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 the material of the body is in some ways an accident, right? Like the, the particular composition of molecules is, uh, is a sideshow. Yeah, the focus on the uh, body um, as definitive of the organism uh, is deeply intuitive to us uh but it is not very scientific and it is not very materialist you know you might say well but of course like if your body falls apart then you cease to be the organism that you were it's like well yeah clearly but the reason that happens is because the networks that form you cease to function right they're disrupted uh your autopoiesis as a whole ends and so uh that's one way to look at this thing that at, at first glance is quite unintuitive i feel like with my my experience with this paper is you got kind of or i went through this like first stage of like okay there's organisms you know you can think of any sort of aristotelian organism um like a bird or whatever um and then you say but what you think of as the organism, that sort of ideal picture you have of the organism, is not really what makes it up. It's this network view. And then you get into something like, oh, digestion, right? Or like uh, celery production or aging or like all of those kinds of things, right? That like problematize this idealist picture of like the unchanging organism. And then that's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's like, yeah, I get that. Like, I understand. Like, you know, we're breathing in and out constantly. We're eating, you know, we're excreting. Like, we're doing all kinds of things. And where we'll get to eventually is when you get to the, the sort of boundary problem between these two different ideas of like, well, okay, so like what are bodies then if we're made up of networks of processes, right? And that's where you start to do the kind of like really interesting uh, thinking um, because that answer is sort of non-obvious. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it also resonates with um, what we had in Stafford Beer's Designing Freedom, right? Like in that early chapter where he used the example of a wave on the ocean, right, heading for the shore, and that we, again, in this Aristotelian sort of mode, we think of the wave as a singular object, um, but it's actually the output from a, a set of processes. So, it, but it, it, it is counterintuitive, right? Like, and it's, um, I mean, this is in some ways the history of philosophy after Aristotle, right? That, like, our our common sense understanding of the world, like, this, this sort of naive realism is uh, is problematic, right? Like, it, it, isn't partic- it isn't scientific, and it, in many, so many cases, just doesn't line up with reality at all. Um so we have to be constantly on guard, like as as Stafford Beer warns us, we have to be on guard against uh, what he calls entity thinking, and instead do systems thinking. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Certainly, uh, the philosophers leading up to Plato um, and Aristotle, at some level, were grappling with these problems, right? The the problems of of, of uh, permanence and change. Um, but uh, they didn't have microscopes, right? They didn't. <laughs> there were certain matters of biology that weren't accessible to them, mm-hmm. um, and so you can, you know, you can point back to somebody like Heraclitus to understand something like this. But really, we're talking about something a little different from from that sort of classic thinking um, of the Greeks. Yeah. Um. So moving on a bit, like all of this raises the question then of like, I mean, if you, if you can think of like organism equals network or organism equals body, the next obvious question is like, how do the network and the body relate to each other? And uh, according to the author here, there's kind of, um, there's this sort of classic way of thinking about it where the body is equal to the network, right? That like, oh, this, they're just the same thing. Um, but this other perspective then, this extended autopoiesis perspective instead holds that the, and quoting here, holds that the body and the network are different things, and in particular, that we cannot consistently think of the network as being contained within the extent of the physical body. So not only are the body and the network different from each other, but the network extends beyond the body. And I mean, one of the reasons for this is that it's just like, it's a category error to equate them. Like a a body made up of molecules and so on is not the same thing as a network of processes. They're just, they're like ontologically distinct. Um, to try and equate them in that sort of way would be would be silly. But I think it's, it's, it's also this empirical thing, right? That like, I mean, you just look at these organisms and these processes and it's very clear that there are um, boundary crossing processes that like exit and enter the membrane of the body. Yeah, um, and we should just... Uh briefly sort of loop back to that logical point because he does give a a pretty succinct definition of why this is a category error. He says, uh, the body is an object in the physical world and is made of molecules, whereas the network is made of processes and consists of relationships between them. Uh, In the language of Maturana and Varela, it exists in the relational domain rather than the physical domain. Um, and this sort of problem is very much the sort of thing that the ancient Greeks debated, right? Because that logical problem was already accessible to them. Um, the second type of problem, the one that has to do uh, with sort of the 
like biological processes that we now understand is something quite different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the example of the biological processes that there are, uh, that's given here is the, um, the enzyme ATP synthase. There are processes that would allow for hydrogen ions to pass inside and outside of the cell. Um, but even beyond that, like, I mean, we, we talked about in the green room, like that the, um, for, for many organisms and including humans, like there's processes like digestive processes are externalized from the body, right? Like we cook our food, <laughs> we, we do pre-digestion before it enters the body. Right. And, um, that's, that's a pretty, pretty good example of that. Yeah, and you could say, like, oh, well, but that's not really digestion, right? Like, that's that's just an ingenious trick. Um, it makes it easier to do digestion. But if you take this extended autopoiesis view and, like, you take a sort of practical view of how our bodies move through our lives, um, then, yeah, you could absolutely understand that cooking is a form of digestion. Um, and it is it is a part of our extended autopoiesis. Mm-hmm. Um, other examples given here are uh, behavioral feedback loops. Um, so where the kind of the the state of one organism is influenced by the states of others, and in this kind of reciprocal manner, um, kind of harking back to our coverage of of Pickering there, right? Like with this this sort of um, black box ontology of like a. A, uh, a world that is composed of all of these massively distributed interlinking processes where, you know, it's hard to work out what caused what because everything's interconnected with each other, uh, with everything else. Um, and a per- perhaps a sort of more narrow example of that is a symbiotic mutualism between species, right? Like um, you have all these kind of strange interrelations between seemingly distinct organisms where... The constitution of one of them is dependent on the constitution of the other. Um, you know, like the um, the birds that eat the uh, the bugs off of the hippo's back or whatever, and then you know the the hippo is relying on that to keep keep them healthy and this sort of thing. So I mean, like we, we, we've we've gone up the hill there from like, oh, this this seems really kind of nuts as an initial proposition, and then gone from there to, oh no, this does make an intuitive sense. It's just an intuitive sense that's at odds with. A supposedly common sense way of understanding the world, right? Right. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Um, it 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 is evident. There's there's good evidence for this sort of thinking. Um, it's just yeah, it just goes against uh, our sort of basic intuitions. Some of which are perhaps they just have to do with the way that our our visual uh, systems process information <laughs> and so, some of which uh, may do have to do with our, our cultural inheritance yeah um, that's yeah. interesting right because I mean like we could um, we could dwell on the example of the um, uh, digestive process being externalized right in cooking um, and look at it through those two lenses that like I mean just as a sort of visual processing thing you look at the the person standing there with this pot on a fire and it just it feels initially like it's three distinct objects rather than it being a process where these three things are actually entangled with each other but then there's the cultural layer to it whereas yeah i mean it's is 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 this in some ways a sort of thing that's like specific to to western science or whatever you know the the way whatever way pickering would put it right the um the kind of reductive kind of scientific uh, lens that we tend to look at the world through 
And do you think there's anything to that? Like, is is there a, is there a big cultural dimension to the, these these ways of seeing the world? Um. Yeah. Like, I I I do think that I think that people, in a very sort of immediate, intuitive sense, tend to um, group things visually, uh, right? Um, but the way that we sort of reason about what we do uh, see uh, can can differ quite a bit. So I feel like it's kind of like when you when you butt up against practical intellectual problems in everyday life, uh, your way of conceptualizing and working through those may vary considerably according to your culture. And the vision at the visual level, this can happen as well. Um, there, there are certainly ways that we aggregate vi- visual information that that have some uh, cultural background to them. Um, but it's probably uh, less than that sort of more conceptual, practical level. And then you have the 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 the, the very abstract. Um, conceptual level that like Pickering is talking about um, where you know you do have quite radical differences um, because of sort of that that uh, path dependent uh, differentiation of of, of uh, emphasis and methods of reasoning and all that kind of stuff um, so yeah so I would say like you know it's not true that uh, everybody's going to call the same color green right um, like for example, uh, you know, this is a, just a very common example. It's often used to talk about cultural relativism, but, um, some colors, uh, yeah, this is the part that I guess is not actually very well understood, but, um, some colors, uh, are somewhat ambiguous as to how we categorize them. And, uh, that categorization tends to be culturally determined. So um, there is, for example, like the the green stoplight, right? Uh, or sorry, the green the green traffic light. Um, that green uh, in Canada we would call it green. Uh, in Japan they would call that ao, which could be interpreted as either blue or blue green or it's some kind of ambiguous color space that we don't have a particularly good word for in English. Um, and that perception is, is culturally determined. Um, so it can get right down to the perceptual level, but from what I understand from like the, uh, actual, like the sort of best laboratory research that's been done in terms of like practical phenomenology, cross-cultural phenomenology uh there are some colors that tend to be fairly universal in their interpretation and others that are more uh ambiguous and tend to be more culturally determined now of course i'm sure the cultural relativists will come at me and, and you know try to try to attack me for making any kind of universalizing claim at all. Uh, I certainly had that problem in my methods class when I was writing about this stuff in grad school. Uh, but, you know, uh, yeah, there's problems with doing laboratory research, but, you know, you can sort of make some some 
possible provisional claims about about biological universal determination. Maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe. maybe. It's, it's, you know, they're, they're provisional claims, right? We, we can't, can't take this as, like, hard evidence of, of, like, well, this is the biological realm and this is the cultural realm and never to the, shall the two meet. Yeah. Um, I feel like even with all those caveats, we're still going to get acted pretty hard for some of that. Oh, there. yeah. I know. Uh, I know. Yeah, but, so... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, anyway, I, I guess what I would say to that is that that is my understanding of, of how this works is that, that there tends to be less cultural difference, um, at a sort of basic perceptual level and it, it becomes progressively more and more differentiated the more conceptual it becomes. Um, but there is like a very large interface uh, between those two poles. There's a very large gradient. There's a lot of room for uh, the um, interaction of our of the way our eyes and our, our visual cortex work with uh, with our culture um, and with our, uh, our our forming of concepts because they do have such a strong visual basis to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So moving on a little bit, um, I mean, the, the, the author has established by this point that like these, these sort of extended processes um, are the, you know, they're, they're the rule, not the exception, right? That like, you know, in, in pretty much every case you can name, the network is larger than the body, right? Like it's, it extends beyond the boundaries of the, uh, of the, the membranes of the body. Um, and to, to quote here, if we have eliminated the idea that the body and the network are the same, or even that they are coextensive in physical space, how then do they interrelate? This, to my mind, is where the really interesting questions lie. Clearly, the network must be tied to the body in some way. On some level, the Earth system consists of a single network of processes, of which each individual organism is merely a part. However, if our theory is to have any power, then we need some way to pick out the specific subnetwork corresponding to a given organism. Equally, it seems clear that the networks corresponding to two different organisms should be at least on some level and to some extent distinct from one another. So this is getting interesting, right? That like if if the network if the network of processes extends beyond the body and like if ultimately the entire i guess the whole world or the entire universe is a on some level one massive network how do you how do you pick these things apart right um and the suggestion here is that the this is about the sort of need for identification and distinction between subnetworks and between subsystems um, yeah, because, you know, we've sort of seen in uh, Pickering, but sort of our discussions of cybernetics in general, that this network point of view tends to um, break down distinctions between organisms or categories of being uh, and creates these kind of hybrid machinic um, understandings of reality. Um, so when you do take this point of view, you're confronted with the sort of like uh, Delizian limit case of utterly incomprehensible uh, chaos. Um, and then you have to kind of think about, well, all right, 
let's not throw out the network perspective, but also um, let's think about how does distinction form, right? Yeah, um, because I mean, like breaking down the breaking down those distinctions can be useful in some ways, but then you you can end up in a just completely formless nightmare of uh, of, of flux. Um, and the suggestion here is that on some and this does this does overlap with um, Deleuze and Guattari's kind of machine ontology, I guess, or their 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 notion of a self assembling universe, right? Like a a universe that begins as a kind of undifferentiated flux and then condenses and makes distinctions inside of itself. And like, I think you, you could probably come up at this from an information theoretic sort of cybernetic angle as well, that like the need for systems to become distinct from one another as a sort of operational concern. And the suggestion here is then that one of the ways this happens, which is like empirically ubiquitous in biology is the, the construction of a body to maintain distinctness. And crucially, the construction of the body is the output from this process of differentiation rather than being primary in itself, right? That like the network of processes needs to isolate itself from an environment somehow. Probably, I have a feeling this you could put this in terms to do with like Ashby's law of requisite variety, right? That like a system in order to maintain requisite variety for itself, has to wall itself off from the rest of the world somehow. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is you make a body. But this this flips it all around, right? So that the body is secondary. Um, yeah, exactly. And and it's important to note that like the body doesn't actually it doesn't it it, it doesn't actually become become the limit or the boundary of the network which is kind of the entire point of the auto extended autopoiesis idea. But it does form a kind of membrane of inclusion and exclusion um, that facilitates the functioning of the network as a whole. Yeah. Um, one of the examples the author brings up here is that of a termite mound, or I guess an anthill, which is itself a body um, that helps to maintain that it's sort of it maintains itself, right? It's its own network of processes. It is distinct from the environment, and yet it is permeable, right? Like the um, the molecular parts of the termite mound, like the, the termites themselves, uh, pass in and out, carrying out the processes of the mound, right? That the the hive is a a sort of network of things that is is beyond the sort of physical hive. It's cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's probably all sorts of other examples we could get into there. And yeah, like that's, that's what's going on here, right? That the, the, the author's flipping this around. Um, they're, they sort of go on to say that they're, they're sort of very concerned with how this would tie into like the origins of life um, and the sort of thing that like taking this like organism equals network perspective um, and taking the body to be a sort of empirical observation or a, or a non-trivial outcome of the network. Uh, what would that mean for like how how life emerged, and and like the wider ecosystem stuff, right? The sort of Gaia hypothesis and this kind of thing. Yeah, it, it seems that like uh, Virgo is saying here that uh, his general research project is focused on this uh, origin of life problem, um, and uh, within the 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 within a sort of conceptual understanding of the Gaia hypothesis. Um, right. Uh, it seems like he's a, he's a adherent of that 
of that hypothesis. That sort of yeah, I mean that 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 just sort of reminds me of a, a bit from earlier, right? About the symbiotic, um, the symbiotic sort of things, right? That like um, if you have a symbiosis between two organisms, there is clearly a part of their networks which is actually shared between them, and so we've we've already gone past the idea of the distinct bodies really identifying the organism but it would seem also that the the networks themselves aren't aren't even distinct right that like which which gets yeah. tricky then because you you start to slip and sort of slide towards that um uh, as you said that kind of delusian horizon of like everything's just liquid and uh and sort of untamable chaos right um by by sort of admitting that and i I think we we might have to just sort of balance that off right of like understanding that the world in itself is probably this incomprehensible chaos of like interconnected networks but Mm -hmm. for our observational purposes or for the purposes of navigating the world cybernetically we are allowed to just say okay this network belongs to the bird and this network belongs to the hippo and there is an overlap but you know just let it slide you know maybe that's the way we approach this um well and i guess the the notion that is brought in here of uh distinctiveness of 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 sort of a individuality to a given network is something that we can use to identify individual organisms but i feel like is also like i don't know there's some level at which you can look at this understanding of organisms and how they interact with each other and then understand our need conceptually to distinguish things in the world as coming out of that right like it's essential to our own functioning as organisms that we can distinguish mm-hmm. between things. Right, right, right. Like we, we need to be able to distinguish between a tiger and a tree just for the sake of survival. Um, yeah. Totally. In the same way that we have to maintain a membrane between the blood in our body and the lower pressure environment around it, right? For our body to maintain itself, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that that's quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting matter. And uh, I just did want to, um, perhaps for like the listeners uh, who who haven't heard of the Gaia hypothesis, I just wanted to, to give a quick rundown of what that is. Um, it's basically just the idea that the Earth is an organism. Um, the Earth as a whole is an organism. It is, it is a, a, you know, it's that hylozoism that we talked about in, uh, in the Pickering episodes, right? Like the, the, there, there is something, something living about the Earth. It is not just a big rock uh, with a, uh, a whole bunch of living things growing on its surface. So that idea has, uh, I guess it was, it, was it come up with in like the, as like a kind of hypothesis, like kind of scientificy thing, uh, in like the eighties or something like that. I feel like it was around that time. It um, it smells like a very seventies, eighties kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it was largely derided, but in recent years has started to kind of gain acceptance within scientific communities. Um, like I, I know, like uh, Latour has become a big advocate of this idea. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's quite interesting. It is. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think it, um, it's sort of the, the, the way one reacts to it sort of depends on how one thinks of organism, right? Because like, there's a, there's a sort of naive realism of like, just like, oh, a dog is an organism. Clearly the earth isn't right. Because the earth isn't a dog, you know, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> is earth dog? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But, like, if you take organism to be more about organization and, and you know, a bit, a bit fuzzier and a bit, like, closer to the actual science, um, then, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to... It, well, I guess what I mean is you're, you're thinking about it in terms of complex systems, right? Like, as, you know... Um, and this is something I kind of wanted to, to kind of segue into as well, that, like, um, we've been using a lot of examples from biology here and, like... Some of the listeners might be like this, especially the sort of listeners who come along for the techie sort of cybernetics sort of stuff. It might be wondering, like, why, why are they talking about this? But it's like, going back to beer, these principles should apply to all complex systems, not just those in biology. It's just that biological systems are the complex systems that we are most familiar with, like intimately familiar with. Um, so this kind of brings us to this notion of like, non-organic or non-biological systems which exhibit these same um, features but that wouldn't have bodies. Like the example we were talking about in the green room was capitalism as an autopoetic system that doesn't have a body as such, but it does have territories and kind of abstract things which are kind of like membranes and so on. Well, so, yeah, I mean, and it, it has it has like non-abstract things that are like membranes too. Like it, it has it has borders, right? Yeah. Like it's like these 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 uh, there are material processes within the sort of theoretical body of capitalism that we could we could see in this way too. Certainly, um, yeah, definitely. I was, I, I guess, I, I'm sort of like there would be perhaps you know in reading this paper there'd be a, a risk of then privileging the biological as having these dynamics uniquely um and like because i mean I, I could also imagine i mean I'm, I'm arguing with the straw man in my head here but like somebody would say a border isn't a membrane or whatever a membrane is is made of flesh or whatever and you, you would have to argue them down from that stupid position <laughs> right like it's <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. People who have no imagination oh, or, or or fucking cognitive yeah. capacity, right? They're they're out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. It's like extremely like vulgar materialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like the, the cybernetic stuff and this complex system stuff is a it's ruthlessly materialistic, but also not 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 vulgarly materialistic, right? Like it's able to grapple with these repeated kind of refrains in reality right like that the same idea the same sort of concept is instantiated in so many different ways on different scales like um so we have to take the idea of body here as being much more general than simply a biological body but being a, a kind of territory in that kind of um that kind of Deleuzean sense right of like a, a repeated pattern that establishes an inside versus an outside um, but that also the thing that establishes the pattern, the network is larger, is not contained entirely within the territory. Um, 
So, I mean, exa- an example we were think, uh, talking about as well was that, like, um, a, a body such as a trade union or um, or a political party is not exhausted by the it, it, it or it doesn't exhaust the network of processes that forms it, right? So that like um, the 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 workers' movement is not contained entirely within the trade union bodies, um, nor mm-hmm. nor is the sort of general activity of the the political activity contained within the party. These are bodies that are smaller than their networks. Yeah, and I mean this is a really important issue, right? Because um, you know, you sort of see these kinds of problems come up with like uh, syndicalism or with uh, Marxism-Leninism, um, where there's a lot of sort of uh, misunderstandings of the nature of these boundaries, the nature of the networks that are involved. Um, they get reified, and this leads to sort of political strategic errors um, as well as uh, uh, organizational errors. Yeah. To say the least, yeah, like the the over identification with the with the body, right, the, the 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 concrete instantiation, rather than with the 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 broader network, yeah, and like um, I kind of wanted to bring up as well that I, I thought this was kind of interesting as a follow on to the viable system model stuff in that, um, I I think with a lot of the viable system model material, there's actually. Like, again, like Stafford Beer warns us against entity thinking, but in contemplating system one, right, like the the sort of operational units, uh, there's a real danger of falling into that, right? Like um, identifying, like, or, or, or I suppose missing the sort of interrelated network of processes that forms the real system one and instead focusing too much on the uh, visible bodies of system one, and I think like it's 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 in the way he presents it as well, because like for, you know, the example is that like a firm is made up of departments, a department department is made up of I don't know teams or whatever, and I think that it, you could end up thinking then in terms of like oh the the sales department are down the corridor on the left in that room, and the you know uh, marketing department is on the opposite side of the building in this other room that you would be led to think about the stuff in terms of the identifiable localized territories like rooms or even buildings right that like a very naive application of the vsm to a a company or an organization with many say campuses or whatever or many different sort of uh, locations would be to just identify the buildings as system one and then go from there uh which i think i think is definitely not what Stafford wants you to do it's like they he wants you to think about processes and networks of processes as as the operational units I guess, but I guess like the, the problem is in the terminology there right the unit kind of implies a, a, an identifiable singular body in this kind of problematic kind of way yeah well I mean uh, it's kind of like um, the the units certainly can be reified. Uh, however, I do also think that there is there is some value in thinking about um, the units as bodies in the sense that they are used here uh, in this paper uh, and thinking about the extended autopoiesis of those bodies as like the uh, process relations between 
uh, units. Okay. Yeah. Um, because we saw in one of the case studies that we we read uh, in uh, our previous episode about um, how at a certain level of growth of organization, it is it is uh, actually quite useful to establish bodies, mm-hmm. or you know you might call them organs, but it, 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 that's just a that's just semantics, right? Like it's it's not really meaningful in this uh, particular problem. So uh, yeah, so so like that was actually like a positive outcome of the VSM was of the of the use of the VSM was to establish bodies within the organization. But again, very important to um, understand that extended autopoiesis. Um, in order to have a actual systems understanding as opposed to a like uh, essentializing reifying um, the map is the territory yeah. kind of point of view right um, yeah and the other thing uh, I wanted to, to to bring up about that oh, I, th- I think I've lost it now <laughs> <laughs> slipped away from you um no, yeah, that, 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 that's a great point, right? Like, and um, I guess it sort of loops back around to a, a point in this paper about uh, the formation of bodies being a solution to problems of complexity. Um, and we, we see it at the cellular level in biology where, you know, like, oh, the, the, the abstract problem is how to allow for the maximum number of like these entities to coexist. Oh well, the the way to do that is to have them hive off from each other in, in cell structures. At the organizational level, you get the same sort of pattern repeating. That like, how do we allow for the biggest possible organ organism, like the biggest possible firm? Oh, the way to do that is to do cell division inside the firm and form bodies or organs. And same thing here. Um, no, yeah, yeah. It's exactly that uh, that matter of autonomy. Um, of, of the operational units uh, that comes up in the VSM, right? Um, I f- yeah, I feel like there that each operational unit is given a kind of mandate, and that mandate uh, forms a kind of basis or protocol for the ma- maintenance of its autopoiesis or its autonomy, right? Yeah, so that seems like a good opportunity to segue into the kind of the last section about like distinctness and distinctiveness. Um, so what's what's that all about? Right. So distinctness is something that uh, Virgo argues um, non-living uh, systems can possess. Uh, so the examples given are uh, a, a flame from a candle, uh, which is actually quite complex. Um, and does maintain a certain uh, autopoiesis. Um, because, you know, uh, poesis, the word poesis comes from Greek, um, and it, it, it did not refer just to living things in its, in its original understanding. It, it, can, it, it applied to basically all of our experience, the, the world, right? It is poetic. It is self-arising. So you can have non-living things like a candle flame or another example is a hurricane, uh, that can maintain a kind of structure. They can they can have a uh, they're, they're, the the network of, of operations within them uh, maintains a kind of system um, that can be quite complex. Uh, but they are not living. Um, and Virgo argues that 
apart from that sort of distinctness that would distinguish a flame from its environment or a hurricane from its environment, um, you can also point to distinctiveness. Um, so what Virgo says is an organism seen as a network propagates not only a generic set of processes that are part of all organisms, it also propagates a particular set of processes that are unique to that individual or to its lineage. This maintenance of distinctiveness is another recurring theme appearing at least at the levels of genetics, epigenetics, development, learning, and ecological inheritance. My own cells propagate my own particular genetic makeup, but I also have memories that I retain from childhood. These have persisted despite the replacement of all the matter in my brain many times over. They are a property of the network and not just the materiality of the body. The body, though, plays a crucial role in making this maintenance of distinctiveness possible, and this seems to me like its true role within an organism equals network perspective. Um, so uh, this is like certainly true um, that this distinctiveness doesn't just operate at a mental level, right, um, uh, in terms of memory, uh, but uh, can actually happen at like an epigenetic level or genetic level. You can have, um, you know, there's plenty of research showing that, uh, you know, uh, grandchildren of abuse survivors can are at their epigenetic level exhibit the record of that abuse right like that that it is in our bodies and in our lineage that this stuff that our distinctiveness gets carried on um it's it's not just uh in you know what we teach each other or whatever uh, or the memories that we maintain throughout our life um it's actually at many different levels you can you can see this this kind of thing happen yeah which is um yeah i mean this this is uh, this is provocative stuff right that like um and again to tie back that the, the notion that the the body is formed in order to facilitate distinctiveness um it's a kind of like a, uh, like a, an inf information theoretic sort of thing right that it's it's walling off a part of reality in which to preserve and to kind of proliferate this distinctiveness versus all the other stuff in the environment it's um it's a, it's a hell of a world, right? Like it's um, yeah. This 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 universe just like dynamically generates novelty at a frightening rate, and just does does <laughs> yes. its absolute best to enable like completely maximal difference uh, across all vectors and across all scales. Um, I was really glad to to read this to kind of um, tie some of this sort of stuff together. And as as I mentioned a few times, like there's pretty pretty strong resonance with. Um, with some of the the stuff I've been reading in in Deleuze and Guattari as well, there's great resonance with beer. There's, yeah, I think this this is useful stuff. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that this idea of distinctiveness um, maps very well onto the notion of autonomy that we find in the VSM in Beer's work, right? Especially the the sort of moral dimension to the VSM. Um, in terms of the, the, the value of autonomy, not only in sort of practical terms, but also in moral terms, uh, we can see that sort of rooted in an appreciation for distinctiveness. 
and and that that's that's really quite interesting. Um, I mean, this is a, a hypothesis. It's certainly grappling with uh, ideas about life that really do go like way back to the ancient Greeks. Um, like the, the, these these problems of the species versus the individual um, are absolutely there in Plato and Aristotle. Um, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, but um, I really appreciate having it in sort of a modern scientific context, in a systems thinking context um, that that it, that is in dialogue with uh, the most recent research um, in biology and actually can be uh, brought into conversation with uh, cybernetic stuff like uh, the VSM. It's really interesting. Yeah, totally. I mean, even beyond the VSM, like Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety, I feel like there's there's an alternate version of this paper or maybe an extension of it that would go through this distinctiveness thing uh, and tie it to Ashby. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it absolutely could be done. Somebody listening to this, go out and write that paper. <laughs> <laughs> you, you write it and you'll read it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I also wanted to say that um, this way in which you can start reasoning in biology and then reason outside of biology uh, is um, often a very fruitful approach. Um, you know, we see that in Marx. Uh, with the influence of Darwin on Marx, uh, we, we, we see, uh, especially if you look at uh, John Dewey, um, his divergence from Hegelianism uh, was majorly uh, influenced by Darwin and by biology, and he really worked to uh, have a biological focus to his philosophy. Um, but I think you see it throughout cybernetics as well. Um, that there's a lot of reasoning that comes out of biological phenomena and can be very illuminating uh, when thinking about society as a whole. Yeah, totally. I mean, like the, the biological systems are the most obvious and most complex complex systems that we know of, um, and that, that that they're kind of like they're so easy to contemplate, right? That like because um, they're 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 intimate. Like we're we're all intimately familiar with them. Yeah, and uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to bring up was just an observation I had in reading this, uh, which was that this idea of extended autopoiesis is uh, definitely finds resonance with uh, things you find in like uh, Tai Chi, uh, with this kind of idea of 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 of, of a chi body or an energetic body that extends beyond uh, the evident visual uh, visually uh, apprehendable body. Um, and, uh, I think that also gets to some extent to the, these ideas of, um, perception and culturation, um, that in doing, like, I can just kind of speak from experience with this in doing Tai Chi, you kind of go through a lot of internal visualization processes. And the, the constant refrain is that the mind leads the body. Right. Um, that if you're if you are if you are if you are intentionally moving your individual limbs, you're doing it wrong. Um, and that there's this kind of uh, holistic internal visualization aspect to it that does actually produce 
a observably different um, behavior, material behavior in your body. Um, and it creates a different level of perception and it creates a different level of behavior. So, and that, that's at a very deep um, autonomic uh, level. Uh, so, you know, the, the level to which uh, our concepts can interact uh, with our, the deep levels of our body and indeed like with our sort of the network that we are outside of our body uh, is really impressive. Um, and I guess using this kind of thinking, uh, we can kind of maybe develop and refine those sorts of ideas uh, beyond just the like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, whether using this kind of uh, approach would give you better effects in terms of actually doing uh, Tai Chi, uh, I'm not sure. But I think like putting it in a dialogue, they could they could maybe develop in a in an interesting uh, direction. That's it's always the thing I come to with these sorts of discussions is like, well, is the this sort of more modern approach really going to um, produce better effects? I'm not sure, but I guess it's worth thinking about because then we get interesting things like the VSM. Yeah, yeah. Like we we got to be experimental, right? Like we um, we take the take the Tai Chi machine and plug it into the extended autopoiesis machine and see what happens, and then take that machine and plug it into this other thing and see what happens. Um, yeah, like uh, like like what Pickering asks of us to to kind of be experimental yeah yeah um yeah it's it's that that sort of uh openness to ontological variety uh that i think we should uh appreciate and respect and uh don't just uh dismiss um concepts from uh, other cultures because they uh are speaking with a different conceptual vocabulary um which has very often been done in the past especially in like the medical profession yep. uh so uh yeah it's um yeah let's let's keep an open mind uh and and see where these kinds of concepts can lead us yeah for sure um is there anything else we'd like to cover before we wrap up uh no i mean uh i think the the paper is behind a paywall if i'm not mistaken yeah uh, so unfortunately that is not going to be accessible to the readers. Um, but hopefully this has given you an interesting, um, introduction to these concepts. And, uh, uh, I mean, we've linked it to all sorts of things you can go investigate beyond that. So, uh, yeah, if you have university, uh, <laughs> journal access, then check it out. Uh, if you don't, I absolutely understand why you wouldn't, um, so, uh, yeah, we do try to avoid uh, covering too much content on these uh, shows that is uh, behind uh, academic paywalls because they're very, uh, very exclusive. Um, but uh, I think that as a short piece, this was quite interesting and thought provoking. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to avoid that in the future. Definitely. Um... But, I mean, otherwise, uh, thanks, listeners, for uh, coming along with us on this episode. And um, if you'd like to catch up with us on the internet, we're on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit. We're on the net, uh, on the, 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 the non-Facebook internet as um, at GeneralIntellectUnit.net. If you want to support the show, uh, maybe obviously subscribe, share us around with friends. Um, if you want to support us in a bit more of a material way, um, you can go to patreon.com slash general intellect unit 
and throw us a couple of bucks a month. Um, if you do that at the $5 per month level, you'll get access to our community Discord, which uh, was useful because uh, one of the uh, members there helped us get a hand uh, on this paper um, to actually read it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's lots of interesting discussion happening there. So if you want to carry on a conversation like this, uh, you can absolutely come join us there. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really wild. Uh, we should have set that up ages ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you should also check out, um, go to emancipation.network on the internet and uh, check out our sister shows, um, Swampside Chats and From Alpha to Omega. Uh, they're really good. They're really, really amazing. Yeah, I think probably by the time this airs, you will have already had the opportunity to listen to me uh, on Alpha to Omega but we have collaborations with Swampside also coming up. Yeah, it's uh, we we have a lot of we have a lot of big plans and big ambitions. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be good. Anyway, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.